Hello and welcome back to the Shadow Work Library. My name is Jessica DePotsy and for the next at least 42 shows, I'm going to take you through this series that covers the spectrum of negative patterns in the human experience and how we can transmute them through shadow work. Today I'm coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm staying in this really cool B&B here if you're watching the YouTube version, which I don't do often, but I'm just like, dang, this place is so cute. I have to show it off a little bit. I really had to pull out the big guns here. So what I mean by that is I needed to book a luxurious place to research and put my points together and figure out what I wanted to say on this one because a lot has changed since you heard from me last, which I think, my God, like four months ago? Crazy. I'm so good at this consistent podcasting thing. <laughs> so yeah, um, a lot has changed. Over the last few months, I sat down to continue this research on the next episode, which was supposed to be on the shadow of control and the gift of authority. But I was really feeling uninspired because the truth is my life is in this big transition point right now. And I personally needed a different shadow to explore. You know, it's interesting having a podcast like this where I explore topics that I'm actively also working on. And it's interesting because I have to constantly ask myself, how much do I want to insert my personal life into this? How much do I share? How much is worth sharing? What's even helpful? And how much do I feel comfortable sharing? And the answer for this question is usually pretty clear that if I if I just speak from the heart, I think most of you appreciate the rawness that I bring to the show. And even when I said that, you know, there's upward inflection. I think you appreciate it. I'm pretty sure you appreciate it. <laughs> At least that's been the feedback. And that vulnerability is also really helpful for myself to um, get through the crunchy bits and help me understand myself as well. So I was going to share it. The big change that happened in my life is that my person, the love of my life, Jeff and I have separated uh, for the last month or so, maybe two months at this point. And yeah, it's been hard. Um, and though I'm also really proud of us for making this move to take space to find out who we are outside of our relationship. And speaking for myself here, I have personally had a boyfriend ever since I was like a teenager. And while I was in Costa Rica, I woke up to this craving to find out who I am on my own without a partner. Does that seem selfish? Is that a selfish thing to do? To end a marriage for that reason? Because our relationship was actually great compared to most. It's still really good. Even in our separation, we work really well together, let me tell you. Maybe that's selfish. I thought a lot about that. I continue to think a lot about that, obviously, because this isn't easy. And in choosing and deciding something for your life that impacts somebody else so greatly, it's going to hurt people. So am I okay with being somebody's bad day? What is the right decision? I think you might be able to relate to this. And uh, yeah, and I, but I knew that for some reason I wouldn't regret it. At the end of my life, I would regret not having a season of being an individual. And hey, this might be a terrible decision. I watch I die alone and sad. <laughs> but seriously, I know that that isn't true. I feel divinely guided. I feel humbly divinely guided 
in a way that I can't explain. So yeah, it's been hard. Um, don't get me wrong. I cried more than I ever have in my whole life in the last couple of months because this was my person and it wasn't supposed to happen that way. But the universe works in mysterious ways, as they say. And if I know anything in this realm of change and unknowns is that if I follow my intuition, my future self is going to thank me. So obviously, I have been going through many emotions as I'm initiating this big life altering left turn. And so I felt like I really needed to dive into a different shadow. Because I've explained this on this episode or in this podcast before that when I put out an episode, I really need to embody the teachings. Otherwise, I'm just just spitting rhymes, right? And um so yeah, because it's my show, I get to do what I want. <laughs> so today we're talking about the shadow of purposelessness and how we can transmute it into totality. Now transmute means evolve something into its higher form. So yeah, this is time for some adv advanced shadow work action because I need it. Maybe you need it. So let's get to this heavy hitter. This is the shadow of purposelessness and the gift of totality. All right, so what is purposelessness? I mean, you can just feel the vibration of that. It's like, ooh, heavy. And I think the best place to start with this one is actually this potentially controversial, what I believe to be a truth, is that all, that the deepest of all human fears is death. And that all fears can be reduced down to that. It's this fear of being extinguished. It's this fear of non-existence, um, of being forgotten. And for most of us in the Western world who don't have to worry about survival so much, it becomes this fear of not living. You see, in the context of the shadow of purposelessness, people on our planet mostly fall into these two categories. You're either a victim of circumstance, um, you know, you're a North Korean or you're a refugee with, with your purpose to physically survive, or you're a victim of the system. And by that, I mean, you could see that as all institutions that strive to make us the, the same and sterilizes our existence of being human. For that first group, physical survival gives us this very powerful purpose. Physical survival is a purpose in itself. And then for those of you like me, to break out of the mold is also a powerful purpose because that feels like we're living our own lives not ones that have been assigned to us. But the reality is we're both in survival states. Some live in the state of physical survival and the rest of us live in a kind of augmented survival state where we get enough fuel, we get enough shelter, but we still feel dead inside. <laughs> Damn, that was heavy. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? It's the sense of purposelessness. You can see that like depending on where you were born, your ancestry, we all have a different relationship to the shadow. Now, if you're listening to this, you're probably falling into that second category. So if you were to think back to a time when you had this tinge of existential crisis, maybe I can invoke it in you right now, Ta. <laughs> where you're wondering, what am I even doing here? What's the point of trying so hard? Feel directionless, I feel listless just this kind of small and lost feeling in the sea of people, that's that general feeling sense of purposelessness. It's generally a sense of an awareness of time passing you by without much meaning or much to show for it. 
And every second we subconsciously are knowing or unconsciously knowing that we're getting closer to death and never really knowing when our ticket's going to be punched. So this awareness of our own mortality is this gift and this curse that we have, that we humans have, because it drives us to do amazing things. And then it also drives us to keep us from living, um, living in the sense of really feeling alive. And God, what irony is that, right? Because our because of our fear of death, we also postpone living. And yes, this is super intense, right? Like we, we went in there quick. But like I said, I'm feeling intense right now. So I hope you're enjoying this ride with me. You can get off whenever you like. Now, the phrase that I really wanted to dive into, something that I mentioned earlier, um, is augmented survival. Because this might be our root cause of this evolved version of our fear of death, which is a fear of living, postponing living. So there's a book written in the 1960s called Society of the Spectacle. Its French author Guy Debord argues that the contemporary capitalist society has become obsessed with images and appearances over everything else. We've become obsessed over our appearance, an appearance of prestige over reality, over truth and experiences. And I just want to pause there for a moment and just highlight that this book was written in the 60s. Old Guy is likely rolling in his grave in the state of the spectacle that we're a part of right now. You know, he wrote this manifesto as a critique on uh, post-war capitalism. And he really wanted to encourage people to recognize what he called the spectacle. Observe how we fall in under the spell of marketing and influence and to also overthrow it. Um, and so after this rise of social media, this book, Society of the Spectacle, has been hailed by some groups as this real call to action of our times to navigate this highly image-obsessed, um, honestly confusing navigation of where the virtual is becoming more important than what's real. So in this book, Deboer writes, capitalism has produced a level of abundance sufficient to solve the initial problem of survival, but only in such a way that the same problem is continually being regenerated at a higher level, meaning the superabundance brought about by capitalism means that our basic survival needs are very easily met. Um, well, I want to say very easily. They're easily met, yet in capitalism's need to grow and to profit, it's redefined what survival means. Now, <clears throat> before one of you out there calls me a Marxist, joke's on you. I don't even really know what that means. Okay. <laughs> But we're talking about capitalism right now. Okay, I don't want to put a big old label on it. All that is to say that this phrase, divorce phrase of augmented survival, it's important to understand, you know, when we don't just want consumer goods, we consider them a need for our survival. It encourages us that we need more, even though we should have enough to fulfill us. And this need to have more eventually evolved into the sense of having to gain prestige as a basic need because more became this signal of prestige so then prestige becomes a basic need meaning as we're guided to have more subconsciously by thinking that it'll improve how we appear to others um, it'll also increase how we're accepted by others respected by others and loved by others now today we're surrounded by this appearance-based advertising Effective marketers sell us products 
not by explaining how great they are and their functionality, high quality, but how they improve our appearance and our perceived lifestyle and how they can make us feel more alive. And I know this because I am also an effective marketer. And by doing that trade for so many years, I realized really, really early on though, that marketers hold such power for that very reason. I think that's why it's up there with the most hated careers, like lawyer, marketer, used car salesman, because we know basic psychology, we know the principles of influence, we know how to tell a story, we know how to make things sexy, and without a lack of integrity or alignment, that is a super dangerous person. But anyway, that's not what this show is about. I want to get back to like what is, why am I talking about consumerism? What does that have to do with the fear of death? Well, most of you listening are likely getting your base needs met. We'd covered that already. So the question is, why are we afraid to really live? What's holding us back? And naturally, I go to more definitions. What does it even mean to really live anyway? Well, when you're born into institutions that encourage us to be like everyone else, really living in my opinion, begins when you realize that you're unfulfilled by being like everybody else. Really living begins with that observation that, oh, time is ticking down and damn, I don't even know who I am. And that used to be called a midlife crisis. It kind of like makes me laugh right now because we don't hear about that, that phrase or that word very often anymore. You know, it's like, more like a preteen crisis or a from birth crisis, it seems, because we're actively playing into consuming this influence of social media, myself included, by the way. I always have this disclaimer. I am not on a soapbox. I've got my earrings on, you know, and I'm going to post this on social and stuff. Uh, But like I am actively playing into this influence of social media. It's like a clockwork orange style of flashing these curated images into our red and watery eyeballs (laughs) these images of young people who are happy, financially successful, fulfilling perfect relationships, perfect families, perfect beige toys for perfect beige kids. Meanwhile, you're 34, you're single, temporary living at your parents' house. That's me. I just described myself. (laughs) I promise I'm fine. (laughs) Okay, I'm joking. But it takes conscious effort to not compare yourself to this constant stream of curated personal bests. And this isn't just social media. This is all kinds of advertising. This is image-based marketing. It's politics. And there are very few places in the world where you can go where you're not soaking in a message designed uh, designed to attract your attention. It's on the clothing that we wear. It's in the words that we use. It's the culture we represent. All of these images and bits of media, and I'm talking about, you know, if you're going into the woods and you have tools with you, it has logos on it, like it's everywhere. All of it tells a story of the last hundred or thousands of years of people trying to live and make sacrifices and give up or go for it. Like all of that is packed into the images that we're seeing today. So anyway, it's fear of death for us is this unconscious panic that we're running out of time to live. So doesn't it seem obvious that we should just go out and do it? Like, why do we 
avoid actually going out there and curating these experiences and new perspectives and experiment with life bravely. Because if we think about like what is afraid to die, the body isn't afraid to die. It's the ego that's afraid to die. It doesn't want you to root out your fears. It doesn't want you to explore the things that make your stomach turn. Because the inconvenient truth is that before we live, a part of us must die. And so it's just easier to try to live through through others, through this perception of living. Because this external validation can give us this hit of, of a real experience. But we all know that that's not true. So a part of us, if we must live, if we want to live rather, before we can live, a part of us must die. Intense, right? God. That's a, a shamanic truth. That's something that I also believe to be true as well. Now, if you listen to my last episode, I started off by explaining that I'm apprenticing in Costa Rica with a medicine woman who I love so much. My several months there, which was a catalyst for a lot of big changes right now, um, and I do intend of going back next month. So the experiences that I had there brought to light just how important facing our own mortality is to really living. It was really common for me to be in ceremony and to be asked by the, the attendee, the client, am I dying? Or I think I'm dying. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm dying. Or afterwards, it was all about dying. It's so interesting. There's this element of death that for some reason needs to be embraced so that we can live more fully um, to feel more lit by life. Because after you walk through that death door, whatever it appears to be to you, you will have learned something big. Now, what you do with that insight is a completely different story for another time. Yeah, we need to talk about integration at some point. I'll just ask you, like, what do you think about that? Before you can live, you must die. Just think about how many myths and stories have that kind of message. Um, Harry Potter, shit, spoilers, okay, Harry Potter. Um, the Lion King, The Matrix, Jesus Christ and his resurrection, they all have this resur resurrection story. And we love that story because it's our story. So let's dial it back a little bit. Most people do shadow work or plant medicines or self-development or pursue growth in some way because they want their lives to improve in some way, right? And in that work, things really need to be decided. There's always this long list of things that we need to decide to do or not do. Am I deciding to quit my job and follow my passion or am I deciding to find meaning in the present moment and what I'm doing right now? Am I deciding to go to the gym and get really snatched? Or am I deciding to love my body in whatever form it wants to be in? The etymology of the word decide is Latin and it translates um, into cut off. So to decide on something means you need to literally cut off or kill off uh, a part of yourself. So in other words, you need to let a part of yourself die so that you can choose the other thing. If we don't decide or kill a part of ourselves, then that's when we live in that weird limbo state, that postponing your life until your unfulfillment either becomes so great, you just literally can't bear it and you need to do something about it, or you actually die. Now, if you're expressing the shadow of purposelessness outwards, 
in this reactive fear style. You might be experiencing uh, risk-taking, but not the healthy kind of risk-taking, which we're going to talk about a little later, but this kind of like rash and extreme jump from activity to activity at this unpredictable pace, almost as if you're trying to outrun your sense of non-direction. So you're urgently seeking something to give you the sense of purpose. And the really scary thing for you, if this is something that aligns for you, is that your own inner silence and stillness can be deafening. Um, and that can be one of the scariest parts of, of all of this. That's why you keep running, because your inner voice is like screaming at you in the silence. If you're experiencing this fear inwards in more of a repressive style, then you're going to feel the sense of hollowness or exhaustion, like you just have no juice left and you have no chi left. And that can also be a really scary place to be. You have no sense of purpose. Everything kind of feels like it doesn't matter. Um, and no matter what you do, no matter how opulent or adventurous or interesting, it's just, it feels lackluster. And so for both, not facing your demons will have you living this half-life this half-life of lack and um, a lack of depth and a lack of understanding of of those who have dared to look into their dark nights of their souls. And that's a shameless plug into the documentary that my team is producing. So if you want to check that out, you can go to dark night of the, sorry, you can go to posttraumaticgrowth.film. Okay, so let's dial it back to level 10 and talk about demons, literal demons, figurative demons, let's talk about both. What is even real, right? If you've spent enough time with a shaman or a metaphysical medicine man or woman, um, me metaphysical medicine person, a healer, which first of all, I highly suggest you do because they are cool people. They can be very cool. You might have come across a conversation around demons or entities. So the shaman operates in a world of vibration and they can identify fear patterns and pick up on fear patterns and they identify them as entities which either need to be dislodged or from your inner being um, and sent away or transmuted into a higher version and it stays and that's really the foundation of a true shamanic practice now how they go about doing that differs from lineage to lineage where they're pulling into their own bodies where they're giving you the energy to do it yourself um, or plant medicines are involved, right? Now, if you've spent enough time with a psychologist or a therapist, they exist for a very similar reason, but they examine our mental and emotional worlds um, and name these same fear patterns as neuroses or mental illnesses or personality disorders. And other systems gives, give other names to these fear frequencies, like the Jungians might call it archetypes. Now, what's true? Okay, I can start by saying, obviously, I don't know. I can also say I've seen some things at the Awakening Center that have me really feeling like demons are their own thing. But it's also possible that our psyches and our bodies are showing us possession, like a, a psychological disorder kind of possession in a way that we'll understand based on our own stories and our own myths. Just something scary to wake us up to how important it is to work on it. Either way... I want to talk about demons and entities from that shamanic standpoint because that's because I it's exciting to me. Um, so, from what I understand, in the shamanic viewpoint, when a person's behavior kind of defies 
logical explanation. The shaman looks for this possibility that a possessing and uh, potentially malevolent spirit has attached itself to the person. And these spirits can distort it, an individual's perception to such a large degree that even their physical appearance changes and their actions become unrecognizable from the person that we had previously known. So let's bring this back, you know, dial it back again, really working those knobs. <laughs> I want to think about alcohol or booze, right? Another word for that is known, um, it's, other, it's also known as spirits. And it's called spirits because the spirit of alcohol we're drinking can possess us. And it was, it was thought that we started to call alcohol spirits in the Middle Ages. So different types of alcohol and drugs have different kinds of spirits or archetypes associated with them. Maybe that's why you're a different person on tequila than you are on wine, maybe, right? One of the big problems associated with alcohol or drug addiction is that the spirit attached to it which takes control of the human who's ingesting it, you know, it, it's almost like we become possessed by it, right? And in the case of these very addictive substances that are usually abused because a person's normal state is so unpleasant that the altered state is preferred, so that person is already vibing low, that's when the spirit attaches to that person. And the love for the drug or the love for that spirit itself becomes more important to the user than the love of themselves or family or friends. And that can lead to this very dangerous downward spiral. Now, is it literally the spirit of Bud Light that is possessing you? Or is it merely this chemical addiction? I don't know if it really matters, honestly. The point is seeing our demons in this more contextualized way can be a very helpful method in ridding ourselves from them. Because as my teacher often says, a problem recognizes a problem half solved. So sometimes working with, with these archetypes that are feeling very real can be more helpful than its chemicals. Um, but maybe, maybe that's not you, right? Now, entities aren't just reserved for drug and alcohol addicts. Some possessing spirits come uninvited and take possession of the host without them even noticing. So I've listened to hundreds of stories about possession and found that a common through line is that the possessed person was either the illest, meaning like the sickest, um, they were injured in some way, weak, neglected um, in their family or in their community. And it's thought that the low vibrations that that person is emitting are exactly what that darker energy needs as its own fuel. That's pretty interesting stuff, right? And I mean, you don't have to subscribe to any of this to see some value in understanding that when you vibe low and you habitually vibe low, you will gain a kind of mental or emotional disorder or an entity that's going to be a real challenge to shake, especially alone, which is why we seek the help of the shaman or the therapist or our friends. And also keep in mind that the true shaman um, or effective and honest therapist knows that they can never take away a person's entities or they can never take away a person's fears or negative patterning for them. They can only help the person identify their fears and then guide them through the darkness so that their fears can be accepted. Wholeness, which is the gift state of this, wholeness comes about as you accept and embrace all of your deepest fears. And I'll leave you with one more shamanic uh, bit of wisdom that I learned that the only way to transmute an entity or a demon is to 
absorb it into the light inside yourself. And I promise you, that's not just like this insightful, deep quote that I'm trying to put out there. This is super, super true. The only thing that fights the darkness that tries to keep you small and hollow or risk-taking or neglectful of your highest good is love. All right. Now, that basically covers purposelessness. It's postponing of living and running away from the sense of darkness and feeling fragmented. Direct, feeling directionless, directionless is because you have pieces of yourself all over the place. You have pieces of yourself that you really like, that you want to promote, let's say on social media and show off and tie ribbons around. And then you have pieces of yourself that you're ashamed of and that society, as we know it today, doesn't love and feel like too much or too little. So then what this transmutes into is totality. You know, what is the goal of the person who seeks the shaman or the therapist? It's totality. It's wholeness. It, the youngins would call it individuation. Where you feel like all the pieces of your puzzle have been put together. You feel joyful. Which is not happy all the time. But joyful contentment. Like things make sense and everything is okay. The sad is okay. The angry is okay. It's equanimity. It's the middle path. You don't need constant external validation and you see holistic goodness in all things. The gift of totality is embracing these various challenges that life brings you. Um, It's gathering all of these archetypes, all of these parts of yourself that make you you. And you're like, welcome. I want to talk to all of you. You all have a stage here. Totality is also not sitting idly by and being like it's all okay the way it is and I'm just going to sit on my couch while while the house is burning down. I love that meme. Totality is actually living in this continual state of risk taking. And not the extreme kind of risk taking that I was talking about with the reactive manifestation of the shadow, but the kind of risk taking that is like creating something or moving towards something that you really can't see until it's complete. That takes bravery. Richard Rudd in The Gene Keys says so beautifully, what you are building is the path of your true destiny. This is a path of deep trust in which the individual strikes out on their path, surrendering their whole being to the mystery of life and its hidden rhythms. To be total is to be alive in every sense. It's to be acoustically alert to the vitality of every moment as it comes. In the resonant vessel of each moment, fear cannot survive and thus you experience a deepening calm and quietness growing naturally within. God damn, I wish I could write like that. (laughs) So basically what he's saying is totality is about living your own myth and embracing your dark side and to be aware when religions and institutions tell you not to, to just be aware of that. And yeah, that's a little controversial. You know, when I tell people that my greatest passion is to explore the dark sides of humanity, I'm pretty sure they think I'm like a swinger or a witch doctor. But to really explore our demons and to crawl into the dark spaces and to get cobwebs on our faces and to get muddy, that is some thrilling stuff. Especially when we do it knowing that that is what life is. It's comedies, it's tragedies, it's romances, it's adventure sequences. 
life needs this saturation it needs high contrast to be alive and so if i could leave you with one real takeaway from this episode it's to handle adversity lightly because the more you can deeply accept each feeling of fear that comes the lighter you'll grow and the more love you're going to feel towards life and the more gratitude you'll have for that that moment be present with it god i'm so tired of saying be present but it's just one of those things i have to constantly remind myself too when we're present we live in this intuitive way our brains almost don't have a chance to talk us out of this or that or to over logic things or run us into the ground with exhaustion to live an intuitive way and to see that life shows you um, these underlying purpose purposes and everything that it brings you is a really adventurous and mythical life so I feel like this would be a good time to thank you for things <laughs> I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and letting me share a bit of my dark night of the soul. One one of many in my future, I hope, because that means I'm going to be living a long and adventurous life. I really try my best to live the message that I put out here, and this one means a lot to me. And as I was writing out my notes, it was July 13th, it was a full moon in Capricorn, and I did a, a cannabis ceremony at my b and I mean, it was a discreet one because I was in somebody's backyard. And I remembered Jeff and I had our wedding party on the same date some years ago. So it was our wedding anniversary, more or less, um, on this full moon in Capricorn also. And for the first time in my aloneness, as I just finished going through my notes of this podcast and I was getting ready to record you know, today, um, I just, I had this deep deep sense of sadness of killing off this part of me that had this man as her husband and I cried ugly cried and I'm sorry to the B&B hosts I'm okay if you're listening and thank god I felt that totality like thank god I went through the shadow and committed myself to embodying these dark bits because instantly this feeling of sadness felt like like laughing at the same time i don't know if you've ever experienced that i was talking to my friend coach durs and he had just recently done bufo and that's something that's common during that like crying and laughing it's like what is this emotion that i'm feeling it's pretty awesome actually it's like how beautiful is it to like and how grateful am I to have had the opportunity to feel so sad to have loved somebody so much, to have that much love and the equivalent of that amount of sadness was almost too much to bear. And I felt just like us, it felt like us falling in love in a funny way. Just like this loss of love felt as overwhelming as falling in love. This breaking open of the heart area. And to know that my intuition and my divine guidance has my back and I'm not really alone and that I can be brave enough to make decisions like this and trust myself, right? And so I want all of us to be brave enough to make decisions that have us living mythically and epically and that might not make sense to people. So all that to say, I am really excited for me <laughs> and i'm excited for all of us to embody um hopefully moving forward this concept of embracing the dark side of us 
And so again, if there's one takeaway, it's handle adversity lightly. And by lightly, I mean, see the meaning in it. And that doesn't need to happen right away. Just be open to acknowledging that this might not be the worst thing that happens to you. It might actually be the best thing. All right. Tune in next time for the long-awaited Control to Authority episode. I want you all to be safe, but of course not too safe. Have fun. And we'll talk again soon. Oh, and if you would like to leave me a rating and review, that would be amazing. That really helps me out. And you can find me on Instagram at Jessica DePotzi. That's D-E-P-A-T-I-E underscore. Jessica DePotzi underscore. Love you. Bye. So it all comes down to this basic question. The human beings have for a long, long time been concerned about transforming their minds. Is there any way in which one's mind can be transformed? Or is it simply a process which is nothing more than a vicious circle? I could ask, why have you come here? What were you looking for? Why have you come here? What were you looking for? Why have you come here? What were you looking for? Why have you come here? What were you looking for? too presumptuous of me to say that you were looking for help, that you hoped you would hear somebody who had something to say that would be of help and relevance to you as members of a world which is running into the most intense difficulty, a world beset by a complex of problems, any one of which would be bad enough. But when you add together all, all the great political, social, and ecological problems with which we are faced, they are appalling. And one naturally says, the reason why we are in such a mess is not simply that we have wrong systems for doing things, whether they be technological, political or religious. But we have the wrong people. The systems may be all right, but they are in the wrong hands because we are all, in various ways, self-seeking, lacking in wisdom, lacking in courage, afraid of death, Afraid of pain, unwilling really to cooperate with others, unwilling to be open to others. And we all think that's too bad. It's me that's wrong. Why have you come here? What were you looking for? Why have you come here? What were you looking for? Why have you come here? Why have you come here? What were you 